You're listening to On Script, a new podcast bringing you conversations on current biblical scholarship. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to On Script's fifth episode. This is Matt Lynch. And I just want to say to everyone that it's been a fun journey so far for Matt Bates and I with OnScript, and we'd like to thank you for your interest and positive feedback. If you enjoy what you've heard, please share the word on Facebook and Twitter. We now have a Twitter account, OnScript Podcast, and you can leave a comment at OnScript.study or review on iTunes or, you know, put a notice in your church bulletin if that's your style. We don't want to hold you back. Uh, this episode's a bit different. At Westminster Theological Center, I work with Brad Jerzak, who has done a lot of research on hell in the New Testament and early church. And meanwhile, my former Emory colleague, Megan Henning, had published her revised dissertation on the rhetoric of hell in early Christianity. So it seemed logical to have Brad guest host this interview, which he kindly agreed to do. And you'll get to listen to this in a moment. The, the audio was acting up a little bit, so please excuse that and enjoy what I think is a really good conversation between Brad and Megan on her book, Educating Christians Through the Rhetoric of Hell, uh, published by Moore Zebeck in 2014. Welcome to On Script. My name is Brad Jersak, and I'll be guest hosting today. And today we're going to be interviewing Megan Henning uh, concerning her book, Educating Early Christians Through the Rhetoric of Hell. And I want to say up front that this is the best book I read last year, and I've earmarked or highlighted nearly every page, and especially the footnotes, which were incredibly juicy. So thanks for writing this, Megan, and for joining us today. Thank you. I'm honored both to be part of this interview and that you read my whole book, including the footnotes. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're working, and what you're working sure. at. Sure. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor of Christian origins at the University of Dayton here in Dayton, Ohio. Um, we have a great religious studies department and um, two graduate programs, a, a master's program and a doctoral program in the department. And so I get to teach wonderful different populations of students here, and I am also continuing to do research on bodily suffering in the ancient world. Um, So questions of um, hell are still on my mind, as well as um, some work that I do on disability in ancient medicine. Very good. Well, we're going to uh, slowly work through some of the terms and ideas that you've been talking about in this book, and I'll just repeat the title for our listeners, Educating Early Christians, so that tells you a lot about the book, Through the Rhetoric of Hell. And before we go too deeply into the hell topic, I'm wondering if you could just talk to us about the word rhetoric and its use in the ancient world, and especially, um, I, I think this is important because when we hear the word rhetoric today, we usually think of empty rhetoric or we think of a politician's mm-hmm. lying or we think right. of it in negative terms. And yet, as far as I understand from your book, rhetoric was a very important genre. And I'd like you to unpack that for us. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I really appreciate that question because you're right. There is a really important distinction there between the way that we think of rhetoric as something kind of negative in the contemporary world um, and rhetoric as an important 
pedagogical or educational tool in the ancient world. Um, and one of the reasons that I use this as a way of thinking about the biblical texts and the depictions of hell in early Christianity is because um, our Jewish and our early Christian depiction of hell, that at least the one that we're most familiar with in the contemporary world, is really developed during the Hellenistic period, which means that we have to think about um, the Greek and Roman civilization in which those texts were written, and then also think something about not only how Greeks and Romans thought about hell, but the the way in which they depicted uh, that that space. And rhetoric is very much a part of that for the Greeks and the Romans, and then also um, for Jewish and Christian apocalypses. So uh, in the ancient world, rhetoric is absolutely not a bad thing. Um, it is part of basic educational training. We have handbooks that demonstrate um, that both pagans and Christians went through formal educational training called paideia, and they, um, across a wide geographic range through the work of Raffaella Cribiori um, and others, were now aware that um, people are using this system of education throughout the empire so that people in very different geographic regions are doing the same rhetorical exercises. They're learning the same methods of communication, which makes... Um, which makes sense as we look at the literature of this period and see some of these rhetorical devices being used across very different genres of texts. Um, and this has to do with the ways that people were educated. So um, learning something about how uh, people were educated during this period and then the kinds of texts that they produced helps us to understand what it is that Jews and Christians are doing when they develop their own concepts of hell. I think that Rhetoric must be very difficult to spot sometimes in the Bible, for example, whereas, you know, you can see poetry as poetry and treat it as poetry. Uh, you can see chronicling as history making and so on. But it seems to me that when we're reading an epistle, for example, we're expecting what we read there. Or when we're reading a gospel, for example, we might expect well, if it's not in an actual parable, we're getting a straightforward teaching of facts. Um, what would you say to somebody who, who get, is suspicious that, that uh, rhetoric is not giving you facts? Um, one of the main criterion that was used to determine if um, descriptive rhetoric, for example, is a good enough image to use is whether or not audiences would accepted as true. So verisimilitude or truthiness was actually one of the tests for whether or not you were going to have a rhetorical win or a rhetorical fail. Um, and so it's not that it's a simple matter of a true false binary, uh, but rather whether or not you're thinking about how something might ring as true for your audience. So, so in that sense, truth is actually more important than literalized facts, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, truth is critically important. And if you aren't paying attention to the way that you understand truth with respect to your topic and your audience would understand truth, you're not going to be able to adequately convey your message. Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, it's, it's that, um, that when they would use rhetoric and could use images that were familiar to the audience and that would be mm -hmm. plausible to them and that that yes. would convey truth even in a, way, in a way a parable could regardless of mm -hmm. you know literal factuality and stuff like that hey 
Yeah, uh, that you have to use the same visual vocabulary, if you will, okay. that your audience has. Um, and pay attention to the kinds of things that they would be familiar with when you select images. And then can you just say something about maybe how rhetoric functioned? Like, why would you use rhetoric? Um, what's the psychological Good. effects of yeah. it? How does it work? Well, um, there's some really interesting stuff. If you pay close attention to the way that Cicero and Aristotle talk about the use of rhetoric, and they actually use um, Odyssey chapter 11 sometimes as their example of descriptive rhetoric, which is, if you're not familiar, Odyssey 11 is the, um, the Odysseus's own journey through Hades. Um, so the the language that they use when they describe how these descriptions would work in rhetorical setting is that they um, they bring up an, something that has already been imprinted on your brain and thus invoke evoke an emotional response. So Aristotle talks about this, and Cicero says that if um, if an image is intended for the right audience and is well selected, it will make the audience members feel as if they themselves are actually there and they will have an emotional response as a result. Um, so, so it's intended it, to play upon your emotions. Okay. Is that fair to do that? Like uh, on the one hand I can say, <laughs> um, wow, that's so manipulative. But then on the other hand, every sermon, well, you know, why would you ever tell a joke in a sermon or why would you ever right. appeal to the heart in a sermon that, that, um, but for those who sort of feel like uh, playing to one's emotions are manipulative, how would how would these rhetoricians respond to that? Oh well, I think they would say their audience actually demands this, um, and that that it would be um, just poor performance on their part and and bad craft if they were not um, appealing to moving their audience in some way. Um, and that people come to a rhetorical performance expecting to be moved. It would be as if um, you finished a lecture for a seminar or a class and um, and the students raise their hand at the end and say, well, so what? Like they have no idea what what you were asking them to think about in a different or new way. Um, it would feel like they didn't get their money's worth out of coming to class. Okay, really good. I Now that helps me to know then – the function of it. It, it. When I was reading your book, I thought, you know, this answers the question I had as a young Bible college student who had sort of been sold on this idea of being very, very objective. Well, then we'd ask, how do you get this stuff from your head to your heart? And what I was mm -hmm. reading in you was this, this would take truth, not just from the head to the heart, but out to the hands, right? So we're being moved um, inwardly, but we're also being activated into a different kind of life, right? Right. And what you'll notice is that um, this is true both for examples of Greek and Roman rhetoric and also um, in the early Christian and Jewish texts is that the, these texts are intended to activate an ethical response. Um, so you're absolutely right that um, whether it is Lucian trying to get people in the first century to take seriously through his comedy, ironically enough, to take seriously the plight of the poor in their society, or whether it is um, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount being crafted in such a way that puts forward a very serious um, set of ethical demands on the reader. Now, 
that, that tells me there's always an agenda, right? So when it's Virgil doing his thing, his agenda with rhetoric is about creating loyalty to the empire. That's right. In a case like Matthew, you suggest that it had a lot to do with ethical formation of a community and mm-hmm. identification of who they are. Does that sound right? And can you say more? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So in the Gospel of Matthew, it has to do with um, using this language in a way that positively motivates people to um, live up to the ethical norms of the community. Specifically, we imagine, right, the chapters five to seven in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, A lot of students, uh, when they read these texts for the first time, are very concerned, and and even scholars, um, Rudolf Boltmann was very concerned, right, about the weeping and gnashing of teeth in these passages. And, you know, biblical scholars in the early 20th century just said, well, you know, this material is not part of, you know, for Boltmann, it was not part of the kerygma of the church. For um, Bousset, this was just um, pagan nonsense, basically, that had made its way into uh, the Christian tradition. And those are really serious attempts to explain away something in our tradition that uh, we don't like or we don't, we wish wasn't there. Um, but I think in all reality, if we think of the historical Jesus as an apocalyptic teacher of some kind. There's no reason to think that he might not have said these kinds of things to try and get the attention of his audience and to make them think seriously about um, ethical behavior and community standards and um, and their their consequences. So so um, then you also bring up a word that I found very helpful. So we have a lot of different kinds of rhetorical devices, even within scripture, for sure. Um, You mention a particular kind used in these visions or tours of hell called ekphrasis. Can Mm -hmm. you say what that is? Yeah, so ekphrasis is visual rhetoric specifically. So a description um, that moves the audience's emotions and makes them feel as if they are actually present not just something that is a nice description that allows them to call it up in their mind, but actually something that um, visual images that allow the reader to feel as if they are actually present in front of the thing or at the event or the place that is being described. And so the ability to see it then also impacts your heart. That's what I'm hearing. And and, and these tours then, um, you use a word later about even even uh, directing the listener's attention. Paragasis, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yes, yeah. So paragasis is actually, um, so it's not found in the rhetorical handbooks. That's actually a term that um, is named after, right, the famous text, the paragasis or the journey. It's the Greek word for journey. But um, there are examples of ekphrasis that are ekphrasis of a place for example, the Tablet of Thebes or um, the journey that Odysseus takes in Book 11 um, of Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid, for example, where you have visual descriptions of a, of a space where you have a tour guide. Um, and so the function of paragasis is that it can these kinds of journeys actually direct the reader's attention to specific features of a space and and by doing that, offer a kind of interpretation of the space and clue the reader in on what they should be getting out of their journey along with the author and tour guide. Okay, so 
with uh, with these tours, so I know of Odysseus tour, uh, and and I, I know of you know what you see in from Virgil. Uh, mm-hmm. Christians would be more used to thinking about Dante in these terms. Um, yes. What are our Dante, key texts? Oh, go ahead. Dante um, is a great example because he actually read one of the early Christian apocalypses, the Physiopoly or the Apocalypse of Paul, before sitting down to write his very famous um, tour of hell. So Dante himself is likely influenced by some of the, these early Christian texts that I'm talking about in the book. Okay, and then and then you, now you've mentioned this apocalypse of Paul. That that's not so familiar to our listeners, probably. At least it wasn't to sure. me. Uh, what is that? Yeah, so the apocalypse of Peter, the apocalypse of Paul. These are early Christian apocalypses that are um, tours of hell. They also include some scenes of heaven. Um, and in these tours, uh, the apostolic figure, uh, Peter or Paul, is Um, taken on a journey through the underworld. And on this journey, they see um, sinners undergoing punishment for specific sins. Um, The punishments that they undergo are what we call measure-for-measure punishments or um, punishments that follow the concept of lex talionis, that the punishment should fit the crime. Um, But what's really interesting about this is that the the so-called, the sinners that we see are actually anonymous individuals that are grouped based upon the, the sin that they committed. Um, and so one of the things that is interesting about this, right, is that I don't know about you, um, but it's hard to imagine a person who only sinned in just one way in their earthly life. Um, and so just by virtue of the way that these tours are structured, they invite the reader to think of them as instructional, right, that these can't really be describing real people in some sense because, uh no one has a life where their only sin is gossip, right? Um, (laughs) At least speaking for myself, that is not my experience (laughs) of the human condition. (laughs) So you've engaged in other crimes beyond just gossip, have you, Megan? Well, that was not a a specifically chosen example, but sure. Yes, I have sinned in more than one way. (laughs) I'm creative like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I suppose we can see this in Matthew 25, too, as well as the, with the parable of the sheep and goats. There's this, this issue of it's like, well, some days I have fed the hungry and others I've neglected them. Right. Some days I visited the sick and others I actually avoided them. And so, like, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Where would I go? And so on. Exactly. And so these aren't showing us. It sounds like you're saying that these aren't showing us the nature of the afterlife, per se, but rather... Exactly. Fill in the blank. They're not showing us the nature of the afterlife. They're showing us a very specific educational tool that was designed to guide Christians. And because there was this widespread cultural precursor, right, that these weren't the first depictions of hell or eternal torment that were ever created, um, people would have been familiar with the idea that you describe uh, these places of torture as a way of inculcating particular ethical values and behaviors. So would the um, parable of the rich man and Lazarus be an example of this in a sense? Oh, absolutely. And I talk about um, the rich man and Lazarus, I believe in the, um, the new Testament chapter. I have a chapter where I talk about um, all of the other depictions of eternal torment language outside of the gospel of Matthew. And I cover 
the rich man and Lazarus and, and talk about the ways in which it's in, in many ways, there's a lot of really good scholarship actually on comparing that particular passage to some of the work that Lucian does with um, wealth and poverty in the ancient world and Hades. So there we have, um, you know, the, this warning about a reversal of fortunes mm-hmm. uh, and our treatment of the poor. This is very much a, and yet there, even if it's not about the nature of Hades per se, there it sounds like a dire warning. Is that part of the? Yeah, well, it's, can you think of a better way to get someone's attention? <laughs> I mean, the, um, the, and it's a dire warning within the text, right? Um, the rich man's family members and the rich man have a very serious emotional response to this within the text. Um, so the text models for the audience how they should respond emotionally um, just by virtue of the, the kind of communication and the emotional turmoil that the, wealth, the wealthy man is in in his own torment. Uh, and the same thing happens when the weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew gets picked up in the early Christian apocalypses. Peter and Paul, as they're touring hell, are crying most of the time. Hmm. And this weeping mirrors for the audience the emotional response that they themselves should have towards their own ethical failings in this contem- in their contemporary situation. So okay. I think that there are a couple of layers there um, and that you have the emotional response within the text that has characters within the text calling into question their own ethical behavior that then invites the audience members to do the same. So even if they didn't understand the rhetoric and the, and the images were a total rhetorical failure, you usually have a figure in the text who's modeling for the reader how they should respond. Okay, and you've used uh, you've used the helpful word layers because what comes to mind when I'm reading this is I, I'm seeing you uh, I'm seeing you describe really clearly the layer of meaning perhaps that Matthew or Luke are giving in their catechisms for their communities, perhaps a generation after Christ. Um, is there a layer where in terms of Christ himself, his own words in the text um, mm-hmm. uh, to where the audience isn't some forthcoming uh, catechetical school, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. The immediate listeners, is, is he using rhetoric on Pharisees, for example, here? Is, is that one of the layers to look at? Well, I think it's that's a more difficult question. Um, and, and that's partly because I think most of us have become somewhat cynical about how strong a connection we can draw between ourselves and the historical Jesus. When usually when I'm asked questions like this, I say I don't have a telepathic connection to the historical Jesus, so I can't answer for sure, right? Um, so as historians, that kind of question makes us super uncomfortable. On the other hand, um, we do know, right, that that it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for a first century individual like what we know of the historical Jesus to be making apocalyptic claims like this in order to motivate his audience, um, I think some of the information in Matthew, I mean, the information in Matthew regarding the Pharisees has to be treated very carefully, though, because that, I think, has a lot to do with um, Matthew himself and Matthew's community. Certainly, uh, certainly, at least we have, yeah, Matthew picturing Jesus addressing the Pharisees. Well, and there's all kinds of kind of anti-Jewish rhetoric that's embedded there that one has to be really careful to identify as a later first century and not historical Jesus 
part okay. of this component so of the text. I also, um, as I was reading the book, I was writing a list of some of the ways that re- the, the rhetoric, especially tours health function came up and we've mentioned many of them um, one is moral instruction ethical warnings but you also alluded to uh, vindication for the persecuted um, a sort of theodicy for those mm-hmm. who are facing tragedy and even in some cases intercession for the dead um, mm-hmm. or was that me remembering that no there there there, there are a lot of different ways that this imagery can be read. I primarily read it as pedagogical because I do think that that's what most audiences would have gotten out of these depictions of hell. Um, and I do think that that is the main purpose that the authors have in writing them. Um, there have been hypotheses that, that the um, Apocalypse of Peter, for example, was written specifically in response to... Um, the Bar Kokhba revolt and that there's it's there's a vindication for the persecuted martyrs implicit in that text and that those are the people that the text is written to. Uh, I'm not personally compelled by that thesis. Um, I think that's part of an attempt to date that apocalypse quite early. Uh, I don't think that every instance of um, Martus language necessarily requires that there be a situation of official persecution behind it so that I'm less compelled by those arguments, but that is certainly there. Um, And then you have a kind of, uh, in that case, you would be seeing these images in hell as a kind of vindication that the people who have persecuted you will be tormented themselves one day Um, and that 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 would make the audience feel vindicated. But I think that that language in, in the apocalypse of Peter is actually meant more generally. Um, what was the last one that you mentioned? Sorry. Intercession? Intercession, yes. Well, that becomes very popular the further and further you get along in history in this tradition, right? So in the early Christian apocalypses, the apostle intercedes for the damned or attempts to, right? And so in the apocalypse of Paul, in the apocalypse of Peter, we have, I told you already, we have the apostle weeping. And then you have the the idea of the apostle trying to obtain mercy for the damned in some way. And what usually happens in these texts in different ways, right, uh, is that the damned are given a respite of some kind. So a day or a week off from their suffering, usually around Easter, um, as a way of capitulating to the apostles' requests for mercy on behalf of the damned. Um, and Incidentally, these texts were also read in early Christian churches. We have evidence um, that these these texts were read as part of Paschal liturgies in the early church quite late into okay. antiquity. Um, Megan, I'm thinking about these apocalypses that come along in later centuries, and uh, one thing I am aware of is that they didn't tend to embrace the book of Revelation so much because it comes in very late into the canon, like formally only maybe in 395, even after the creeds are finalized. Uh, but with your focus on Matthew, uh, you suggest in your book that that did become a real important uh, source material for these apocalypses. Could you speak to that? Yeah, well, one of the things that was surprising is that they're not drawing on any of the other 
apocalyptic texts nearly to the same extent um, they draw on First Enoch in form, but they don't draw on the language of any other early Christian text to the extent that they do Matthew. I was so surprised to find so many um, allusions to the book of Matthew. We can't be sure that they're citations because of the nature of gospel transmission and, and text reproduction um, in the early church. But for sure, the authors are aware of the book of Matthew and they are referring to concepts and ideas that they've gotten from the book of Matthew particularly the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount throughout. And that's one of the things that was really striking to me is that not only is it not the lake of fire um, from Revelation that is recapitulated in these texts, but specifically that it's actually not just the weeping and gnashing of teeth from Matthew, but the ethical commandments of the Sermon on the Mount. So we repeatedly find that the sinners that we find in hell in these early Christian apocalypses are the people who failed to take care of the poor, um, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and care for the sick. And it, so it becomes very clear that this ethical rubric is very much the goal of the authors of the text, is to re, to get their audience to understand that this is the rubric for ethical behavior within the Christian church. Now, this is sort of off that topic, so I'm missing our flow here, but at the same time, it really jumped out at me uh, in your book how while modern scholars are making a big deal of distinguishing between Hades and Gehenna, and even I've done that in my book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, where I've said, look at you know, in, in Jeremiah, Gehenna is very much uh, mm-hmm. a picture of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And then later in Enoch and so on, it becomes more of a uh, an afterworld judgment. But then generally an evangelical, for example, would say, well, Gehenna technically is after the final judgment, but Hades is this intermediate state. And what you demonstrate and completely convinced me of is the conflation of Hades and Gehenna in that era. Uh, can yeah. you confirm or deny that? Yeah, well, I'm thrilled that I convinced you because that was something I convinced myself of as I was writing. I realized that, you know, I had been trained on this model as well, that Hades means one thing and Gehenna means another. And, you know, I had done my lexical aid searches when I was a master's student and thought I understood how to use lexical tools quite well. And so, you know, I would kind of proudly make this distinction after I learned Greek between the the use of Hades and Gehenna in the New Testament, the same way that many of the standard um, treatments of the topic do in the secondary literature. But what I found when I started to do my research is that that really does not hold true when we start to look at more carefully at the way that the authors are using these terms. It seems pretty clear to me that um, given the use of Gehenna in First Enoch and some of the other contemporaneous references in the first century CE, and then the way in which Matthew uses Hades and Gehenna in, in his gospel, um, almost interchangeably, I think that that distinction that we want to make in the contemporary world would have been lost on ancient audiences. So even if Matthew meant to make that distinction, I'm not quite sure his audience caught it. (laughs) Because I think that by the time he's writing in the late first century CE, those two ideas are already becoming part of a family of concepts of eternal torment. 
Okay. Yeah, that's the sense I got from your book. And and uh, I think there's good evidence of that, which makes it kind of funny then that there's been so much critique of the of the way uh, the King James Version, for example, conflates Sheol, mm. Hades, mm. Gehenna, mm-hmm. all into this one word, hell. But that is sort of what's going on in that first yeah. century, isn't it? Yeah, and um, it, it doesn't make any sense to do that with the Hebrew Bible texts, right? Because that there are distinctions between um, Sheol and the pit, right, and Abaddon and Gehenna in the Hebrew Bible, but um, whether we can translate those distinctions into the first century or not, or whether a first century audience would understand those fine distinctions um, when we come to the Greek reading of the um, the gospel text, it's, it seems unlikely to me. So it is kind of interesting the way that um, scholars spend a lot of time trying to get people to pull those things apart and separate them. And I'm, I'm starting to see by the end of the first century that those distinctions might not be as important. Um, okay. So say, say you've really convinced me, and you have, that the yeah. authors knew what they were doing, that they were not trying to give us a, an eschatology uh, or a nature of the afterlife, that they knew for sure that what they were doing was rhetorical. Um, what about the listeners? Would, would they have understood and played along with this, or would they have been terrorized thinking that it's uh, more actual than the authors mm. intended? Well... Uh, <laughs> as if you could read their minds 2,000 years well, from now. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know for sure about the first century audience. I think that one of the things, when you look, start to look at this rhetorically, and this happens in the reception history of this tradition with Augustine and, and Chrysostom, uh, is that in order for the rhetoric to, as Chrysostom would say, frighten usefully, there does have to be something about it that appeals to your emotions, right? You do have to be a little scared. Um, and so then that raises the question of whether you can actually be scared if you don't think that this is accurate, right? So have you been at a horror movie lately? I, right, well, so that's, that's like a good that? point. Yeah, so that's a good point. And that's one of the reasons why I think that ultimately the rhetoric of hell ends up being a rhetorical fail in the contemporary world is because um, our film and media allows us to be able to imagine things that are so much scarier than anything I've ever read in the apocalypse of Paul. Right. (laughs) Um, And so the rhetoric of hell doesn't really frighten usefully in the contemporary world because um, we can think of a lot scarier things, frankly. But the rhetoric of, of horror movies might be analogous for us in the sense of, I go to a horror movie. I know there's not vampires. Well, I think not. Um, it's, but I enter the story enough oh, visually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do the ekphrasis work there. It's done for me in a sense because there's a screen. Um, I experience the emotions that even though I know they're, that, that, that it's not real somehow. Mm-hmm. And yet maybe I'll walk away with a truth because I've been made vulnerable to that truth by the genre. And and I can yeah. see that being analogous to the apocalypse. Yeah. And if you look carefully at contemporary horror films um, or the latest zombie uh, television and, and movie craze, you will see that there are usually ethical and political messages embedded in those films, right? Yes, yes. The, the authors of those movies do actually want you to, 
even though you know that zombies are not real, they want you to be afraid of certain things that will help you to take away the ethical and political message that they have embedded in their film. And so I think that's a really apt metaphor for the contemporary understanding of this rhetoric. Sure. If we're thinking Walking Dead, then we will have an emotional response to callousness versus empathy Mm -hmm. in that show. And that's Mm -hmm. what Matthew's up to, isn't he? Exactly. Exactly. Let's, you brought up Chrysostom. He's one of my favorites. Um, here's a guy where he was into the hellfire preaching, and yet um, quite I, a bit. it sounds like you would say, uh, yeah, quite a bit, and yet certainly rhetorical. In fact, he even says so, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uses language that mirrors that of Cicero. It almost makes you think he's read him. I mean, it's like he... so. Chrysostom himself seems to have a clear idea that he's using this material rhetorically, and he talks about strategically that um, preaching hellfire is perhaps the best way to get young men to um, behave chastely and to rein in their sexual urges. Um, So he definitely thinks that there's strategy involved in how you employ the language of hell. Um, and he is very interested in, in how to do that successfully for his community's benefit. Okay. And now I see some, I see two on the other hands with Chris, Chrysostom that, that we've chatted about before and that I think come up in the book. So, so one of the other hands is, on the one hand, he's preaching hellfire and brimstone, and yet, on the other hand, He's preaching it to the Christians, actually, right? It's like, mm-hmm. if you don't feed the poor, you're going to hell, you know? And, mm-hmm. he, and he knows these are yeah. the baptized. Yeah. Uh, yeah, with Christian, there's no... Yeah, I, I think that the way that hellfire rhetoric is used in the contemporary world is largely um, aimed at conversion, and that does not match up whatsoever with the way that the rhetoric of hell is used in the ancient world. Um, the oh, rhetoric not just in Chris system, but in the whole no. world. No, I would. I mean, well, that's maybe perhaps an overstatement. Um, but I would that's say that's generally that true, right? The early Christian um, depictions of hell are more focused, let's say, on the believers than they are on converting non-believers through this imagery. And then, and then the other, on the other hand, again. So Chrysostom, on the one hand, is doing hellfire preaching as, as, like, even uh, self-admitted rhetoric, rhetorical strategy, where there's a lot of folks that are in danger of hell. And then on the other hand, we see his actual theology come out. For example, in the Paschal Homily, where he virtually sounds like a universalist, where not, you know, Christ conquered Hades and not one dead remains there or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so do you see this in others as well? Or do you see it in Chrysostom where the, the rhetoric is not the baseline theology? It's just a, a preaching strategy or ethical. Well, Yeah, well, so it's actually interesting when Augustine rejects the early Christian apocalypse, because Augustine really does not like in many ways what's going on with the apocalypse of Peter and the apocalypse of Paul. It's actually because, which were extremely popular in Africa, it's because those apocalypses, he feels, are not severe enough (laughs) because they have this day of respite for the damned after the apostle kind of negotiates for it. And so 
um, Augustine is actually upset because he believes the, the, the rhetoric fails in those cases because it's not scary enough. Wow. Okay. Um, so you, you, yeah, so you do have conscious reflections on the fact that the depiction has to work. Yeah. I guess, um, I guess that would be my, uh, uh, pushback I'd have for those guys. It seems like they're very conscious about the, about the utility of rhetoric, especially mm-hmm. rooted in fear, whereas they seem to be not very self-aware of what I think would be that, that the rhetoric is a means justifying an end that may be contrary to the gospel itself. That is, if mm. perfect love, if the gospel is about perfect love driving out fear, but we're, we feel okay about using fear to try to pe- convert people to love, that, yeah. I'm not sure that's moral, but also is it, does it, what are we actually converting them to? Um, if, yeah, let me be clear that Despite the fact that I study hell and the rhetoric of fear, I do not believe in using the rhetoric of fear for pedagogical purposes, either with my two-year-old son or my students. Yeah, I, I had picked that up. I think maybe. That, yeah, I think that, <laughs> I think that uh, the, um, the ancient context is very different from our own in terms of the way it ethically evaluates this kind of rhetoric, right? Um, so, so that's something important to keep in mind as well. And that's what I found to be so striking about the emphasis on the ethical behavior in the Sermon on the Mount when I was doing the research is that the interest ultimately is in caring for the other in creating these fantastical, terrifying depictions. Uh, and so that gives you a sense immediately when you start to look closely that the way we think about hell in the contemporary world is so far removed, right, from these ancient con- these ancient texts and the context in which they meant to employ this rhetoric, and that we have oh, yeah. to be very careful as a result. I think so. I, I guess I'd want to say, hey, you shouldn't be scaring people. That's not how the this thing works. But um, one thing I did notice in in Ben Witherington the third's work rhetoric is that um, often the when th- rhetoric is used in terms of threat, it's also immediately followed by comfort, and it'll come as a couplet, flattering and, and shaming back-to-back, or threatening and comforting back-to-back, especially in Hebrews, for example. But um, I'm wondering, yeah, it's not just that they were out to scare people. This, this, there was a system of communication that's going on here, isn't it, with rhetoric? Exactly. And it's a system of communication that the audience would be familiar with and expect. So it's not coming out of left field as a kind of fear for the sake of fear um, or even fear for the sake of manipulation or conversion, um, as we see it in the contemporary world. The ancient hearer, when they hear a story about hell, is not thinking, is it real? Does it exist? Um, those are really post-enlightenment questions that we pose to these texts and that we kind of assume, right? But back to our your horror film example, their question when they encounter a story like this is who's there and why are they there? Right, right. Well, and I must say my, um, you know, the Arch- Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, who uh, he, he's retired, but he's the acting abbot of the monastery where I serve. 
he kind of preaches this way, and, and we all get it, you know. So on the one hand, he will say, God sends nobody to hell. And then the next week is like, if you if you leave here with malice in your heart, you're in danger of hell. And, and it's like, oh, <laughs> hang on. And we don't think he's contradicting himself. We, we think sure. that when he's on the, on the first hand, he's talking about the nature of God as pure mercy. You and in the secondary thing, we don't mean thinking, I'm going to hell. We think, I need to go poor, care for the poor, and I need to go forgive people or Until whatever. Time, and we totally get website, the ethical demands that he's making study. Uh, in, in this highfalutin language, right? <laughs> yeah, so he's channeling Chrysostom. It sounds like it. it sounds yeah. Like, yeah. Very good. And can you just maybe, uh, I, I want them to get this book. It, they're going to find it online somewhere and they're going to say this is too expensive and i am telling you skip That's your right. next two birthday gifts to buy it. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well you uh, you could do that or there's also i believe there's going to be an excerpt available on script that the publisher has made available one chapter and you can also find an article which is a small portion um or is kind of related to the book on um the UD website as well. I think there will be a link to it as well on the Onscripts page. But Okay, that's great. Matt will take care of that, and I'm just so thankful you joined me, and we did capture the magic again. Well done. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> it was great, Brad. I really appreciate it. All right, have a good one. You too.